And good morning. Welcome to our Home Improvement Show. Andy taking the day off today. Look who's here in the studio is our good friend, Barry Strands. We haven't seen you for a while. I know. It's uh, great to be here, though. It's always fun, and I know our listeners love it as well. If you have any kind, try to stump this guy. I dare you. Try to stump Stump the contractor. Sure. Stump the contractor. (laughs) Call Barry or send a text if that's easier. Uh, Let me give you the phone number because it's the same number. applies to both phone and text. 651 989-9226. We always get new listeners, and that's fortunate. Uh, you have been in the business. Can you say exactly how many years? I don't want to embarrass well, you. No, you can't embarrass me about stuff like that. It just is what it is, right? You get older and you go, hey, I'm old now. I started in this business back in 1972. Okay. <laughs> so I just had my 63rd birthday, you know, so I'm starting to do the math and going, holy buckets, that's a lot of of years in this business, but you it was so it was you were kind of in the family, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was the he was the trades guy, and he was a home builder, and he was looking for labor. And he just offered me dollar seventy five an hour back in seventy two to leave my paper route and become a contractor, a carpenter. He said, and you know, and you know, you schlep everything around and you learn. And, and Denny, I think the fascinating thing about that is when you can actually come into construction at the ground level like that. It's different than going to let's say a management school uh, where you're learning it from the side of um, uh, education or from the side of a a textbook. And there are great schools like that, and I still urge people to do that. But there's nothing like getting into the business from the ground up and watching it from the the pits, if you will. And I I wish – in fact, in in my classes, I talk to other contractors, and we all wish that we could get architects into the field – and, and require that before they actually get certified as architects that they've got three years on the job site that where they're actually sense. watching things. Well, I had a guy one time, and he's like, I'm building this cool staircase on the design. I'm, I came to him with the plan, and I said, this isn't going to work. And he said, oh, no, no, it's a structural stress skin panel. I guarantee it'll work. I said, it's going to need a support at this corner. And he said, nope, it will be fine. It'll transfer the load down through the actual stair jacks themselves. I said, well, I'll build it the way you've drawn it. And so I got it all done. And, of course, if you walked up the stairs, they only deflected about an inch. <laughs> They're dropping this little landing platform. And so I, I, his office was only about three blocks away from where this project was in St. Paul. And so I went over to his office and I said, hey, we've got the stair platform up. I, I know you're going to want to see this. And I didn't want to say anything. Sure. I just wanted him to try it himself. And, and so, of course, he walked up the step and, he get to, and the whole thing begins to sag. And he goes, oh, well, why don't we put a post right here? I'm like, yes, good idea. Let's have a post. Post because this isn't going to work, you know, and I didn't want to say I told you so, but there's something that you learn in the practicality of actually doing the work that you're not going to learn in the theoretical realm. We used to call that OJT. Yes, on the job training. Yeah. And it's just such a difference when you when you actually have that, that field I, and that skill set. I wanted to ask you, because you've been in the business, as I said, a long time. And would you consider yourself, especially for the first few years and maybe many years, a carpenter? Was that... Was well, I, I would have called myself a laborer. I mean, I would have wanted you to think I was a carpenter, <laughs> but there, obviously there's there's a training that you can go through. But when if you haven't made a hundred mistakes yet, you know you haven't graduated to the level mm-hmm. of going, um, I screwed that up, so I know well enough now to never do that again. Uh, there was a time I moved into trim carpentry out of framing carpentry, and and if anyone's ever tried this, you know the idea of measure, you know 
twice, cut once would be the, the great theory. But back in the day, I'm, I'm looking at my Stanley tape measure and I'm looking at the, the body of the tape was exactly three inches long. So you could do an inside measurement and read the tape, add the three inches and then cut whatever needed to be cut. And in closets, shelves and closet rods became a little bit of a challenging thing to actually measure to get them very, very accurate. So I would just run the body of the tape out and add my three inches. Well, I, I got to the place where about every tenth time I would forget to add the three inches oh. by the time I got back to the saw. And so I had actually cut the old pine closet rod three inches too short. Now, if it was a really small house, and by that I mean entry level, when they send you out your package of materials, that package had only the right amount of material for that house. There wasn't a second extra piece of closet rod material. So you had to actually make that one work or it was on your nickel to go replace it. So I got very good at actually extending the closet rod with a with a glued-in dowel <laughs> and then sand it so that no one could tell. And if you are careful in how you do that, it's almost impossible to tell that there's a seam. And I, I'm embarrassed now when I think about it. But, but I, when I talk about you know, life in the trades, it's the idea of going, there's a learning that's taking place there. And the challenge, obviously, is when you work with people who are young in the business, they might be aggressive, they might be knowledgeable, they might be smart as a whip, but how many things have they actually done? How many mistakes have they actually made so they understand, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, years ago when I first began to teach, I was in the um, theoretical world of, of, uh, of education then, and I was having to write a, a class for a, a manual for real estate agents. And I had done all the work for years, but I had not understood some of the whys of how things work. So I went to the library and I spent a week, 40 hours, literally studying to put together a manual that I could then present to realtors and then teach from that manual. Mm -hmm. And it was there, one of the things that I remember so well about that was that I began to understand the purpose of drip cap over a window or a door. Now, back in that era, this would have been, you know, the late, early 1980s probably as I began to teach. And that we used a wood-primed brick mold on windows and doors. That was standard for all brands of windows at the time. And they were wood and they were primed out, and you needed to put a piece of brick mold over the top of each window or door. And today we have clad windows that have a nailing fin, and very seldom do we have to put a brick mold or a piece of brick uh, cap in. Sometimes we do. We don't always. But there you needed to. Oh, I didn't understand the why of that. And so there were a number of houses where I would just caulk them real good and hope it lasted. Because I didn't understand what was going on. Sure. And it's like you think you know how to do something, and that's a good skill. But if you don't also know the why to do something, you end up having some a lax in the ability to make a decision in the field. And the same thing was true when I got into energy training. I began to go into energy code education as part of the requirement to teach contractors. And as I went to the state of Minnesota and began to take the classes that the Department of Energy was, was teaching, I was stunned at the number of, uh, let's call them um, clarifications, light bulbs that went on, stuff I'd seen at that point for 15 or 20 years but didn't understand, oh, that's what's mm. going on here. So you would note that houses dry out on the inside in winter conditions. And everyone, I think, would make, oh, yeah, houses are dry. So we were thinking about we better add humidity. And the standard mantra in our homes that were built through the mid-century last uh, the, in the 50s, 60s, was you needed to add humidity to houses. Well, what we didn't understand is as we began to change our construction practice in the, well, let's call it the 1990s-ish, late 80s, and as the energy codes began to tighten the house's exterior envelope, we ended up containing 
humidity that was being generated by occupants and by life usage in a way that the older house did not. But we didn't ever change our perspective that houses needed to add humidity in the wintertime. So what happened was we kept going, well, we need a humidifier, we need a humidifier, we need a humidifier. And in a smaller home, there's enough, if you have an occupant load of four people in that house, you're generating plenty of humidity for that home to sustain its levels. You don't need to add anything through a humidifier. In fact, in the first winter, oftentimes if you have a summertime build, the moisture from the paint and the concrete, the drywall, joint compound, the lumber itself that may have gotten rained on during construction, all of that moisture is present inside those materials, and it's going to be releasing into the atmosphere as humidity in that first winter season. So the winter season now brings about condensation on windows in an excessive amount, and people are like, well, you know, we need humidifiers because the air in the house is dry. Not anymore. Everything has changed with the dynamic of the envelope changing of the exterior walls and ceilings of the home. So when I I was just in class a couple of weeks ago teaching and and in Nebraska, and we're talking about this idea of houses are too tight. And still the mantra exists, houses today are too tight. And, And, of course, I think that's absolutely a fallacy. There's no such thing as a house that's too tight. The house was never designed to breathe through the walls and through the attic spaces. It was, you you need a house to have a set of lungs, just like a human body has a set of lungs. So you need a ventilation system that works effectively, but you don't want to breathe through the skin, if you will, of the home. You you have a place there where temperatures are going to get cold enough that any water vapor inside those spaces is going to go from a vapor into a solid or a liquid, you know, go into a liquid or it'll get into frost. And you build up water in those wall cavities that eventually when it, when it gets warm enough, that frost will melt. Now you've got liquid there and you're going to end up with the potential for rot inside the cavity or mold growth certainly. And those are the kind of issues that we have to understand. And you have to have enough experience in life to go, oh, it can't just be a how-to. It has to be a why-to if you want to become actually competent in the, in the field that you're in. We're going to take a break. Barry Strands is filling in for Andy today. If you have any kind of a home improvement question, you want to talk with this guy or send a text, uh, 651-989-9226. When we come back, I want to ask you, and I've done this a long time ago, about where where are we going to find the new tradespeople? Sure. Mm -hmm. We'll do that when we come back. And welcome back to the Home Improvement Show around every Saturday in the 9 o'clock hour. Thanks to our friends at Lindis Construction. Barry Strands is in for Andy Lindis today, and you and I were talking about uh, what's going to be happening. Uh, what is the Linda's called? The pre-Black Friday special. The pre-Black Friday special is awesome. And what they're offering is uh, free labor on Infinity windows from Marvin and Season Guard windows. Those Both are great. of them are getting oh, free labor great. right now. Great. And between now and Wednesday, they're doing a free heat map analysis if you ask for an insulation estimate. And I think that's really cool well, because getting some idea of what's going on with your house. And a lot, again, depending on the age of your home, but the older homes are just really dying for lack of insulation, particularly in an attic area. And yeah. if you can get someone to come out and actually check to see what's going on, you're in great shape to be able to actually make good decisions before the winter season fully hits in. I know it's been cold lately, but, boy, take advantage of spending some money now to save it every winter for the rest of the time you're in that house. I think and it's a great idea. Keep in mind, not only is the, the free heat map analysis when you ask for an insulation estimate, that insulation estimate is also free. Exactly. So Cool, cool, cool. You can't lose. Take advantage of that. Folks, it's a great idea. It's and going that on. way you can learn what's going on in your house. And that map is uh, essential to be able to recognize, look, I got leaks here. I got leaks here. I got thermal losses here. 
And now you know what you're supposed to do as opposed to just guessing. Well, yes. Windows leak. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a problem. Maybe you need Windows. Well, maybe you need new Windows. Maybe you don't. I just put in Windows this week for a homeowner. I yeah. didn't, but our, yeah, my company. And the difference in walking through that staircase, this was a house that was built probably 1940, 1930s, 1940 on Lake of the Isles. Mm. And it had the old uh, single-pane glass uh, double-hung windows with the storms. Oh, and wow. the difference with putting in these new Marvin windows, it's just startling. And we did a full window replacement. We didn't do an insert. And it wasn't that horrible because the opening frame size, we'd ordered the windows specifically to those sizes. And now you've got the ability to go right inside the existing oh. rough opening. Oh, and it was a stucco exterior with a stone sill. So it hopped right in, beautiful, and now the difference as you walk through it, the homeowner's like, oh my gosh, there was a wind tunnel in here before. Yep. And, and architecturally, it looks just, just like it's Exactly the same. How about that? All right. Uh, let me say this again. This is now through Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Free installation labor on Infinity and Marvin, and uh, Infinity from Marvin yep. and Season Guard Windows. Or if you ask for an insulation estimate, which is free, you're going to get a free heat map analysis. Sweet. It's a neat deal. That's we'll, a sweet deal. We'll mention that before uh, before Barry leaves us today, too. So good going. 1-800-LEAFGUARD if you want to get in touch with Linda. 1-800-LEAFGUARD. urge you to do that. All right, let's go to the phones. Jerry is calling from St. Paul. Jerry, you're on with Barry. Yes, sir, gentlemen. Uh, Barry, I've got a home that was built in 1914. It was moved to the present location in 1940. It was put on a new cement block foundation. They put the house down. They put a 25-foot-long wooden beam across, uh, right through the center of the, of the house to support it. And then they put some uh, uh, 10 by 10 wooden beams to support it. There's three of them in that 25-foot length. Well, they put it up a little bit too high, so consequently I have a hump going through floor. my kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing, not being a contractor, I'm guessing it probably would have to be lowered anywhere from a half inch to three quarters of an inch. And being that the uh, house has been in place for like over 75 years, some of the door frames are a little bit crooked. Sure. Uh, if I were to have somebody come in and take those beams out and cut them off a half inch or whatever and gradually lower the house down anywhere from a half inch to three, to three quarters of an inch, am I asking for trouble? No. No. Not at all. Um, here's the key to keep in mind. Houses, as they, as we live in them, there's settling, obviously, that takes place. And also, we've got issues. But if these are center post locations, you might have some superficial cracking on the plaster walls. That's possible. But we move houses up and down all the time. I was in class talking about this because I've done a number of these, Jerry. And I've got a house that was built in 1905, so I did it in my own home as well. And, of course, as a youngster, I would make the mistake of, adjusting my door to fit my uh, trapezoidal opening and then decide, uh, you know, five years later to change the, the floor by leveling everything out. And now none of my doors fit. It was just, you know, just dumb, followed stupid. But if you move those things down gradually, and normally what we would do with that is we would put supporting walls on both sides, get rid of that post, but then those supporting walls would end up with jack systems that you can screw down and lower that space incrementally over a week or so. 
maybe even over two weeks, depending on how, how cautious people are. I had one guy in class, he's like, yeah, well, I wouldn't move it more than an inch a day. And he's like, I'm like, what on earth? He said, how big a bow are we talking about? Oh, he said, the last one I moved was three inches. I'm like, so it's really done all the time. And the, what we normally have are contractors who will not ever guarantee that there won't be superficial cracks. But you're not going to see a structural issue. You're just going to see a superficial issue at the worst. And today, you can go down to a big box home and improvement center, and you can buy a three-foot mesh uh, system that goes right over the wall surface. And then over that, you can trowel a whole new skim coat on the wall and do crack repair with much greater ease than we mm. used to be able to do it. So we can do a whole wall that might move. And generally, if you have a point load on a 10 by 10 beam where you've got a post taking place, that that movement is going to be subtle enough that there'll be some give between the framing and the plaster surface, you're not going to see much cracking at all. Not, not on a half to three-quarters of an inch, Jerry. Excellent. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, Barry, hang on. We're going to take a break. Uh, now, Barry's going to be with us about another half hour, and we've got a bunch of text messages we're going to field in just a moment. And good morning. Welcome back to our Home Improvement Show. We always welcome your uh, Home Improvement question. Uh, Barry Strand's in for Andy Lindas today. We have callers, uh, Barry. We have texters, and we're going to try to grab. We'll put you back to work real Wonderful. Many as we can get. All right. Good deal. Let's, in fact, let's do a couple of phone calls first, then we'll grab some texts. Uh, John uh, is calling from Minneapolis, I believe. John, you're on CCO with Barry. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Hey, I procrastinated all summer. I was going to spray foam my uh, sill jams. In the basement, I sure. got the typical 1950 South Minneapolis story and a half. And my question is, it says do not spray foam under 60 degrees. Yep. All right. <laughs> yep. I checked. The, I just checked. I'm at 56 degrees. Yeah, so. I, you know, I, I, here's the truth. As temperatures get cold, the foam's response to the cure cycle changes dramatically and we get excessive shrinkage. And that's the reason that people don't want to do it because now the thing it's supposed to fill when it cures and shrinks, (laughs) there's a gap. I think that at 56, you're probably within their tolerance for their margins. I don't, wouldn't hesitate to spray foam down to about 45, 48 degrees, some that in that range. So I think that you would be fine to spray it there. And then just note that uh, if you can get a, even a piece of tissue where you've got to have potential air leaks and check it so that you know that you got it all, you can come back and put another application and seal up the gap if it does shrink. But I think you should be fine at this temp. Okay. Thank you, John. Uh, let's see who's calling. Janice. From Brooklyn Center. Janice, you're on CCO with Barry. I have, uh, well, I had a small room, and we had an addition built onto it to make a larger room. Sure. And the floors didn't line up. Okay. And when they went to put the uh, carpeting in, and I wasn't really aware of it or didn't notice it until they were starting to lay the carpet. The carpet layer was a little concerned about it. He actually used some type of a mudding surface or something to give a gentle slope. Yep, a so self-leveling compound maybe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm beginning as I'm walking over the the carpeting again. I can feel the difference now. Sure. What has to be done to even this up? I mean, I'm going to be replacing the carpet. Sure, later. yeah. I, I, it's just difficult to – here's the idea. You pull the carpet up. And then normally today we get a laser level on so we can just check to see what's going on. And if the whole house is settled and out of level, then we would use a straight edge with a string typically. And then we are identifying, is it a high spot? Is it a low spot? And then we would use what we'll call micro shims, which would allow the the new material base to get uh, leveled up. Uh, The difficulty is not knowing exactly if we're up or down in that location, what the best strategy would be. But you can do a trowel on surface material that would then level the floor out 
And the question is, is this a connection problem between the addition and the existing room? And that's what I would want to, before I tell you what the solution is, if it's moving at that joint because that was installed incorrectly, that needs to be checked first to make sure that that's fine. Uh, it could be just simply lumber shrinkage, which is something that's uh, quite common as the house ages. Remember, all lumber is going to come out at a size, and then as it's inside of the house, it's going to shrink as it loses water. And so it's never going to be as big as it was the day you installed it. Lumber shrinks. That's just the reality of the beast. And so typically if we put something in and then level the floor to that level and then the lumber shrinks, now we see a separation of height and we would need to apply another coating to level that floor back up before the re-carpet's done. So it might be insignificant and just need a trowel on material or it might be a connection issue and that should be evaluated. You want to have your home improvement question answered by phone or by text, same number, 651-989-9226. Uh, Here's a text, Barry. See what you think about this one. Uh, We're considering adding a gas fireplace to the outside wall of our living room. We know the fireplace stores sell the gas inserts, but who designs the exterior look we want and who constructs that? Well, typically for a gas fireplace, they'll be direct vented on an exterior wall, so you wouldn't need a chase. uh, That would be the thing that would contain the piping of the fireplace. Typically, that's how we all saw fireplaces. They would have these big uh, pipe container framing systems or maybe brick or stone, and we would put our exhaust piping through that. But on a gas fireplace today, we would directly vent that out the wall, and there's basically a 15 by 15 inch exhaust portal on the exterior side. So there's nothing on the outside to worry about. The inside surface becomes the question of what kind of look do you want? And if a person goes through and just checks out a place like house.com, which would have lots of fireplace design details, then you'd need a carpenter. And then depending on what kind of finish look you want, install the fireplace that needs to be inspected as a, as a framing inspection to make sure it's done correctly. And then the finished materials would be put on. And that could be a drywall interior. It could be a stone. It could be a thin brick. Uh, it, it could be a whole uh, tile or uh, or uh, finished material. Uh, today, there's some really cool contemporary looks, but it all depends on the look that the owner was, is interested in. So you'd start with the fireplace look, then you'd bring a carpenter in. Lindis would quote this for you. Sure they you would. Know, so you'd come out and get an estimate from them, and they'll come out for free and tell you what it would cost them to do the framing, the surround, the installation, et cetera. And now you got that finished completely the way you'd like. So yeah. it's cool. Very good. Text number and phone number, same, 651-989-9226. Go back to the phones. I think Roger's calling from uh, Maplewood. Roger, you're on with Barry. Hi, Barry. Hi, Roger. Um, my, my son bought an old house. It's uh, 1900, um, and it, it's the old rock foundation, partial foundation of the house, but it's uh, the house is sinking, or, uh, obviously, from 100 years ago, and he needs he wants to level the house. Is it worth leveling at the house at that, old, at that stage with the old plaster walls and steep stairway with one bedroom upstairs and only one bedroom on the main floor. Yeah, that's and- a, it's a good question. I, I've got a 1905. So just a, from my own personal reference point, I did my own leveling and I'm, I'm tickled that I did. Now, you have to decide where you're going to draw a line. This is worth moving. This isn't worth moving. And then dealing with the, the adjustment at the foundation. And first of all, I wanted to make sure the stone foundation is what's moving and not any type of the framing adjacent to it. So those old houses would have a center post, for example, and that center post would be embedded into the concrete floor. Originally, it was probably just on dirt, and then we wrapped concrete around it. And the bottom of those posts are oftentimes rotting because we can't see them. They've picked up moisture over 100 years. And now the post essentially is shrinking, and so now the whole beam is lower, and we've got movement that's not caused by the foundation movement. 
It's caused by internal movement, but you really can't tell the difference until you take a good look at it. So with today's laser-level okay. technology, it's really easy to get a laser out there and see, is it the foundation? Is it the interior framing? And, you know, it's a labor of love. I mean, to be real honest with you, the market doesn't really care. The appraiser's not going to come in and go, oh, they leveled this house, and they spent 7000 bucks doing it. You're not going to increase value because you do that. You're not. You're going to make your life better, but you're not going to increase value because the appraiser looks at the old house and says, hey, guess what? Old houses, they've settled, and we expect our comps at that age of home to be settled as well. Unless it's a kind of cosmetic that's so negative visually that a buyer wouldn't offer on the property, you're not going to have a a value in adjusting it. There you go, Roger. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Roger. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to help people, but th- th- sometimes you're asking the value question as well as the – it's a hassle to move stuff around. I mean, it's a lot of work, and there won't be a financial benefit. There will just be a ease, peace well, that, of mind benefit. I'd want to know that as a homeowner. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, we just get into questions about I – mean, I have to try to explain to people how appraisers are required to think. They have a quality consideration. They've got a condition consideration that they have to look at. And when they do a comp, people say, well, I put a new kitchen in my house, and I just spent $60,000 on this new kitchen, so my house must be worth $60,000 more. And it doesn't work that way because the appraiser says, yes, you have a new kitchen, but you didn't upgrade your roof. Mm-hmm. You have a new kitchen, but you've got bathrooms that look like they were you know, from the 1970s. And those condition issues mean that i got one part that's upgraded. The rest is not. And as a result, when the appraiser comps across a home of similar value in a similar neighborhood, they look and go, well, this guy's got a new roof, he's got new siding, he's got new windows, but he's got a dated kitchen. And when they comp that, they go, it's a wash. You have a new kitchen, but he's got a new roof, new siding, new windows. Same thing. From an appraisal standpoint, there will not be a line item adjustment because you've improved the quality of one area of your home. If the entire quality goes up, you'll get an improvement and you get a higher value. The problem, of course, is that gets cost prohibitive in most houses. Let's say under six or seven hundred thousand, it's cost prohibitive to upgrade everything and expect the market to give you back the investment value that you put into it. So, if you get fifty cents back on the dollar for making those improvements, that's about what you should anticipate. And most folks go, "Then why would I do it?" Because you're living in the home. That's true. You're getting all the, the value of, of the upgrade. Yeah, it's like you go to Vegas and you blow ten grand and don't think twice about it. You, you know? don't. Well, I don't because I don't go to Vegas and I don't have 10 grand to spend. I'm still paying for kids to eat. And oh, that's stuff. right. Big family. <laughs> Hang on, Barry. We're going to take a quick break here. We have more uh, questions to get answered. Uh, the, there's an open line if you want to use the telephone, 651-989-9226, or send a text and we'll get back to that screen in a moment. That text number, same thing, 651-989-9226. And welcome back to our Home Improvement Show here on CCR every Saturday in the 9 o'clock hour. Welcoming your phone calls, text messages, same number, 651-989-9226. Barry Strand's in studio for Andy Lindis today. I'll tell you what, you ready to grab some more text messages? Let's do some text messages, yes. Uh, Want to purchase a Santa Fe dehumidifier, have a small unfinished basement, and... uh, Rest crawl space, says, about 1,000 square feet. All say energy efficient, but only some say energy star. Wondering what size and if it should say energy star in the info. They're talking about this dehumidifier. Uh, yeah, I'm for a dehumid, I don't care. I don't think you're going to. 
I don't think you're going to get enough value for what would be an, an Energy Star rating is a company that's submitted to the protocols of the Energy Star so they can label it Energy Star. But most companies that do dehumids know that they've got to make an efficient system or no one will buy their product. So I don't want to say all Energy Star ratings are just a sales gimmick. I don't want to say that. I'm not saying that. I am just suggesting that it's a theoretical possibility that that could be ha- having more to do with uh, the marketing than it does with marketing. actual performance. Yeah. Now, I think, I can't be sure, but I think that uh, that brand name was the one Andy Lindis has talked about in his That house. I don't know. I've, when I heard the brand name, I, I, I cannot tell you if I know that brand or not. So. He says it's pretty super. Okay, well, great, great to know that. I, super. I, Andy positive. says it's super. <laughs> Go with that. Go with it. And, and right. he doesn't say stuff like that unless he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> All right. Here's another text, uh, Barry. We want to open one side of a tunnel stairway into the basement. A tunnel stairway. Uh, who do we go to to determine the size of a header needed to carry the load of four studs, which are two by four? Well, first of all, there, a tunnel stairway is not a technical term, but I think I understand what he's asking for. You've got a walls, walls on both sides of a staircase that go into a lower level, and you want to open that up. It changes the way the whole space feels. First of all, which way are the joists running? It's possible that that's not even a bearing wall. Normally, that wall is flanking the staircase, and as a result, it's non-load bearing. But a, any good carpenter w- ought to be able to determine in about 15 minutes where the load is being transferred. Again, you can call Lindis for something like that. But the bottom line is you might not need a header at all. And so if you don't need a header, then it's just pulling the studs out and doing the drywall repair, and you're done. Again, okay, so I, I need to know the layout of the floor, but if I could see a sketch of that, I could tell you – you know, with 90% accuracy, whether that's a load-bearing wall or not. Because normally when they flank the side of the staircase, it's just not that common that we have that being a bearing wall because that means the floor stops upstairs at that location. Now, at the end of a staircase and you've got an opening, that's quite typical. But, again, if I knew the date of the house and I knew the layout of the home, a a 24 by 40 square foot, 1980s built, that staircase going down almost never is the side flanking staircase load-bearing. Okay. Uh, you, uh, among other things, uh, over the years, besides being a teacher and a carpenter and also an all-around construction guy, uh, you also a consult, do you not? I am starting. In fact, I'm changing career paths uh, here in the next. You few, are n- yes, this next week on my fi- final day with Kyle Hunt and Partners is Wednesday. So I am excited about the opportunity to have time. And I have a great relationship with them. That's not the issue at all. We're expecting to do work together in the future. But the uh, amount of time it takes to do that job uh, has just been so draining on me that I can't do the other things I want to do. And I'm looking forward to more teaching and hope to be teaching nationally more. And I've just been back from a couple of trips that have been so rewarding and so much fun. I love it when people learn something and a light bulb goes on and they go, oh, I, I now I see it. Okay, great. That makes so much sense. And particularly those in the real estate area where they sell or they appraise or they build, it's a lot of fun to work with those groups. And I've been doing that now for a long time, but I need more time to devote to, to that. So I'm looking at that. And then as a result, you know, consulting becomes just a natural tie. And I did consulting years ago. Oh, just, you did? Yeah. About, I stopped about six years ago because I wasn't, again, once you're a site supervisor, there's just no, no time. time yeah. There's no time. So people could email me and uh, be love to talk about your issues, needs, and opportunities because I'm finally going to have time to do that. Well, this so, is all news exciting. to me now. How it, do we get in touch with you? Uh, my email that. is barrystrands at gmail.com. And I don't even have best. Uh, well, I'll Barry give Strands. it to you. And anybody calls the station, you can pass that for, on Bar- to them. Barry, Barry Strands. Yeah, B-A-R-R-Y-S. 
S-T-R-A-N-Z, barrystrands at gmail.com. How about that? Wow, good luck. Well, thanks. Hey, I have no idea how that's going to go, but I'm just excited about the opportunity. Well, I can say from this uh, vantage point, you uh, know your stuff. <laughs> You're really whoever, whoever asks you to come on board uh, to, to, to be consulted. Uh, like I said at the out show, you've, I've learned by making mistakes. And then, of course, I'm not, you know, I don't know everything. But I'm happy to tell you what I do and don't know. Yeah, I don't know that. I can't help you there. You know, and, and so I pre-qualify. If I can be useful, I want to be useful. Yeah. I need to get paid to be useful because i got kids to feed still. That's right. But, A lot of miles you to know, feed. I want to be reasonable in that part, too. Well, the best to you. That's Thanks great. so much, Denny. I'm going to still put you back to work here, though. Excellent. All right. Alan is calling from uh, Champlin. Good morning. You're on CCO with Barry. Good morning. Um, with your guys' comments earlier about... Um, House is being sealed up pretty tight. Uh, mine falls in that category with a uh, floor door testing done. But I do get a lot of moisture in there. Sure. And I'm wondering how easy or difficult is it to add an air exchanger to an existing house that's built in uh, 79? So is it forced air heating and cooling, I assume? Yeah. Okay. So when you add an air exchanger, normally you need a, a space in a mechanical room that will allow you to get a ducting to the exterior wall. And if your mechanical room is already on an exterior wall, it's normally very straightforward to add an air exchange system. So you're going to be pushing air out uh, from the unit and you're going to be pulling fresh air in along two typically six inch round flex tube pipes that will hit your unit and then you'll dump those into two different lo- locations on the return air system. So you'll be pulling off the return air, you'll be adding to the return air. And as you do that, you'll wind up with a system that actually creates that fresh air intake and it'll quickly dry out your home. It's a great idea. And the last time I priced and installed on one of those, it was around two grand or $2,100. So it's not uh, not outrageous, and the results are immensely beneficial. All right, very good. Good luck yes, with that. Yes, good luck to you. Uh, Texas has have two eight foot wide sliding patio doors that over time have started binding when trying to open up on very cold. It says very old days, but I'm sure they mean cold. Uh, the cooler the outside air, the harder they are to open. How do I fix this? Well. Th- Every time you start looking at a patio door, you have to understand that they're subject to changes with moisture and they're subject to changes with temperature. Now, the roller track normally has a couple of buttons on the bottom that are adjustable. And simply adjusting those roller track locations can solve the problem. Uh, We just need to pop the little buttons off. And then there's typically a flat blade screw slot inside. And we go up and down on the track to adjust. And if it's rolling hard, it's either binding at the top or binding at the bottom. And without seeing it, I can't tell you. But making the adjustment up or down typically solves the problem. There's just getting some slight movement taking place within the system itself on the track or on the head jam that are causing that binding. And so it's, it's fairly straightforward once you open those up and begin to play with it. Okay. Texter wants to know, what's the best way to make a brush stroke ceiling smooth? Brush stroke ceiling. So I'm thinking about a swirled system. The best way is to do what's called a skim coat to a level five finish. And you simply come into that space. And normally there's not a pre-sand. It depends on any imperfections. But then you'd come back in and you would do a coating. I just bid one of these this last week. Got a a quote back from a drywall contractor. And to do a skim coat in sand, they wanted $1,200 to do this living room ceiling. Some of a professional company would set up and clean up. So that's not horrible. That's just one room, but not horrible. 
different than popcorn coming off. It's oh, a whole different deal. Oh, oh, oh. So you skim it out, and then you sand it, and then, of course, it has to be primed and painted. But a lot of homeowners feel very comfortable taking it the, from there. You know, once it's done and leveled out, you're back to business. And the swirl obviously creates a dated look based on the architecture of the day that was in place. And if you haven't studied some of the old ceilings systems that we did in the 70s, have you seen the spray texture, the, the popcorn we call it, but with gold fleck in it? Oh, yes. I remember <laughs> this. Like, I don't know who thought that was a good idea. Like but there was a season where that was the really coolest way to do a, a spray textured ceiling. It was like a disco ball. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> Something yep. like that. Yep. All right. We, we have less than a minute, Barry. Okay. Uh, selling a house with asbestos tile under the carpet. What, what do they, these folks have to do? Well, nothing. Uh, nine by nine, typically, asbestos tiles are they're nothing. As long as they're not disturbed, there's no asbestos fiber being released into the air. So if it's there, the disclosure is known asbestos, but hasn't been tested. You're guessing. If you're guessing that it's asbestos, there's nothing to disclose. If you know it's asbestos, then you must disclose. That's the idea. Disclose known environmental hazards. Happy Thanksgiving to you and that great family. Man, to yours. you too, sir. And uh, how do we get in touch with Barry Strands? BarryStrands at gmail.com. Just like that. All right. We're already getting calls about you. Oh, I love that. that. All right. We'll see you uh, down the road. I know you'll be back. I hope so soon, sir. All right. Thanks. Barry Strands.